Hi, I'm Chris Nessie from the House of EdTech podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Carol Underhagen, and she is the author of Born Child and Writing Down Cancer. Both books are a collection of poems, one that tells her journey as a child uh, who's surrounded by trauma, and the second recounts her desire to overcome breast cancer. Powerful, powerful books. Uh, she's an inspiration, and uh, you're going to learn so much. But before you go, it would be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash review and left a review. Could you do that for me? That'd be so nice. And also, uh, if you know someone who hasn't listened to the podcast, uh, why don't you share it with them? You know, a family member, a friend, a colleague, a, a next door neighbor and say, hey, you should listen to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12. And here's the link. Could you do that for me? Thanks so much. You are awesome. Enjoy the show. It's the education podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests, and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dr. Steve Milletto. Carol Anderhagen has been a published poet and writer since the 1980s and is an active disaster relief volunteer with the American Red Cross. She has confronted many challenges in her life. Taken out of her home early in her life, removed from a mom with mental health issues, she floundered in foster care and then was adopted by a Navy couple. Her second mother became an alcoholic. Later in life, she became a survivor of breast cancer. Both her childhood of drama and her adult health care scare are the subject of her books. Her first chapter book, Writing Down Cancer, was published by Finishing Line Press. She followed that up with uh, the publishing of Born Child. She has been published in regional journals such as Anemone, The Great Swamp Gazette, New Newport Life, and Northeast Journal, and served on the staff of the Frost Festival of Poetry, Franconia, New Hampshire, for seven years. She served as a docent for the museum hours at Robert Frost's home in Franconia, New Hampshire, assisted the director with book sales, and edited the annual attendee anthology of readings. Carol also worked as a school librarian media specialist for nearly three decades. Carol is active in the Ocean State Poets of Rhode Island, both as their web designer and as a practitioner of poetry outreach. As secretary and webmaster of the organization, Ocean State Poets in, in Rhode Island, Carol created and maintains the website, OceanStatePoets.org. As an OSP member, Carol has participated in area readings and nurtured a public library writing group with another poet, Heather Sullivan. Carol and Heather have worked together for seven years in a Salve Regina University community service class, which pairs developmentally handicapped adults with Salve students. The class has produced two anthologies of poetry, a DVD of stage presentations highlighting community student abilities, and several group poems presented orally each school year. She earned a BA in English and an MLS from University of Rhode Island. Carol has two children and two grandchildren. She resides in Rhode Island. And for more information, please go to carolmayray.com, and I'll have that in my show notes. So, Carol, welcome to my show, and uh, say hi to everyone. Glad to be here. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to interview me. Well, I'm glad that you're here. And uh, before we talk about your writings, uh, let's talk about something that I read in your bio. You're a disaster relief volunteer with the American Red Cross. Uh, could you talk about where your interest came from and uh, a little about what you do? Well, I was looking for a uh, kind of seamless move from being uh, from being a very active junior high school and 
a you know school media specialist librarian with 12 year olds 28 years with 12 year olds uh, into something that would would uh, be as much a calling for me as being in education had been and i um just happened on um you know on the american red cross and actually their office was right off the highway <laughs> and so one day i just stopped there and, and got involved i didn't know they did disaster work i had contributed to um you know hurricane andrew and hugo um but got involved with the disaster work part of red cross and then got involved in the group that was rolling out all kinds of new technology on the disaster responses which was very exciting for me because i had was the first school librarian in the state of Rhode Island that was on the internet. I um, managed to switch the card catalog over to an electronic catalog. I taught all my teachers how to use the internet before I retired. So it, you know, and then of course the main motivation is that helping others, that people in need, because certainly I had been a child in great need and people had helped me out. So that's, the story of my being involved. And I did it very actively out on disaster responses for a good 12 years, then kind of scaled back and worked more locally with a, uh, the chapter in Rhode Island. That's awesome. Thank you. I don't so think I could keep up the, the pace <laughs> anymore. Well, that is awesome. Thank you so much for all that you did there. That's, uh, that's, uh, so You're welcome. That is so cool. Um, you know, and we've and, got a lot of them right on the ground in Florida right now. I can imagine that's, uh, I can only imagine. Well, unfortunately, one of the ways I parted was they had to save money. They stopped giving us hotel rooms to stay in, partly because it's hard to get them in a disaster area, and started doing staff shelters. And when I was asked why I didn't want to do a staff shelter, I said one word, orphanage. I've been there. I'm not doing that. And that was time for me to scale back anyway. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even think about that. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah that's. <laughs> they do. God bless them. I was just looking at pictures this morning. You know, great big gymnasium with all these cots lined up. Uh, not for me. Nope. <laughs> oh, my but gosh. they do it. They get out there and sleep on those cots and work their butts off all day for people. So much so. That, so that's uh, very, very cool. And it's neat that you did that. Uh, um, so um, very nice. And thanks for talking about that. I, I, You know, so let's shift from there. Speaking of the orphanage, talk about you as a child. I mean, you were mm -hmm. sent to an orphanage at the age of seven and didn't get adopted until you were eight. Right. And, and your parents were living, but your mom had mental illness and your adoptive mother was eventually becomes an alcoholic. Yeah. Um, and, and, and certainly, I, you know, in a way, I don't blame her because when they adopted me, and, and I have great appreciation now at the very end of my life, that in 1940, in 1948, they walk into, after the war, the dad, this man had fought all the Pacific battles as a naval officer. They walk into an orphanage and find a lost little girl and offer her a home, you know. Unfortunately, state of Florida wanted me out of Florida because my biological father kept coming and grabbing me. So we go to Rhode Island where they live, and Rhode Island turns around and says to them, oh, well, we're only going to prove this option if you buy a house and settle down. Well, they had a life where they traveled together on their duties. And when that ended and she was forced to stay home with me and you know see her husband go off to sea duties every two years um you know it was it was terrible for her and she did take to drink and that was terrible for me however the new grandmother moved up from florida into a little cottage because they were forced to buy a house the state said rhode island said you we're not going to approve this adoption unless you buy a house and settle down 
So the new grammar that came up, and I am actually living in, and you can see these beautiful wood walls, which you won't, I realize, on the podcast, but um, I'm living in that cottage and right on the bay in Rhode Island. Um, so it was it was difficult. It was difficult. But I did have this new grandmother who, in many ways, uh, was like the one wonderful foster mother I had was a British woman um, for about a year and a half before I was sent to the orphanage. The three years before that, are really a blank. They're so tra- I was so traumatized that I've come to realize I was so traumatized that I was afraid to even feel fear. That's how shut down I was between the ages of three to six. But when I went into that one foster home, that little gleam of light stayed with me all my life. And you know, when you asked about what teacher, um, you may ask me about what teacher had. She wasn't a teacher, but she probably had the biggest influence on me because she, she, I felt love with her. And, and the, the pain of the orphanage was really the pain of being dragged from her, just, you know, taken from her. Gotcha. Yeah. And, uh, th- and yes, we, um, I appreciate you sharing that. And just as a note to my listeners, the, the wood walls are beautiful. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's very nice. So, uh, common groove, half inch thick, and boy, they in the winter they're great insulators. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. awesome. The yeah. uh, uh, so let's let's talk about uh, um, you know one of the things that uh, the the impact of these experiences had to have a lifelong impact on you. And um, what tools did you use to help you overcome thoughts that you know may have become haunting or troublesome to you? Well, you know, I had I it was all sealed off. It was just plain sealed off. And when I had my own two children by my mid-20s, I realized I needed to go back. See, what also what happened was I was told when I was adopted, do not talk about your first eight years. You have a new life now. Forget it. And they were told nothing about me, except fortunately that my biological mother had gone to college and that I apparently had enough brains to do that too. So, And they were professional middle class, you know. One of the things that really helped me being a junior high school librarian in a mixed community, university and working class community, I came from working class roots. I got adopted into a professional family. Uh, And so I've seen both sides of life in a way that most people, many people haven't seen. Um, So I have to get the question now. Sorry. (laughs) Um, Oh, that's all right. I was at just that. So, right. What, so when I, I wanted to go back and find out more about, myself and my foster mother that one good foster mother had put an address on the back of a picture in a little album she'd given me and so I wrote and son of a gun she didn't still live there but she the letter got to her and she we communicated for a couple years and then I went down and to find my biological parents because not because I needed to connect emotionally I just needed to know that it happened I needed to know they existed uh, and I did. It was fairly easy to find them. I won't go into all the details, but his name was in the, his name was Adolphus J. Ray, unusual name. His name was in the Miami phone book. Wow. And I found out years, you know, when I when I called, eventually he told me he always, even though he lived in boarding houses and rooming homes, he always had a phone in the name in the phone book because he knew that's how I'd find him. That's awesome. The, uh... but fortunately, after all that turmoil, finding him was not hard. Gotcha. And as I said, I didn't need to connect emotionally. I just needed to confirm that, yes, it all happened, it all existed. You know, one of the things that uh, I, 
you've mentioned is that uh, in um, is that uh, you kind of want to help children and young adults um, not deny stuff that happened to them. Like you mentioned that you were told, just forget it. It's right. it's done. Right. Why do you, why do you want to do that? And what, well, I had quite an experience with the lockdown. That's how I even got started on wanting to do these interviews. Uh, I thought it was fine. I had friends across the street. I had my daughter, you know, shopping for me. I had my tenants who had been with me for 22 years. Everything was in place. I started sleep eating, sleepwalking and sleep eating to the point where I gained so much weight I had a hernia. Anyway, I finally one night in the depths of despair said, what's going on with you, Carol? And immediately the one word was orphanage. And I realized that the lockdown was mimicking the lockdown of the orphanage. So I decided this is this is another example of trauma for me. And I got myself a good trauma therapist to unravel some of this. And, but early on, I'd gotten into therapy early on. But what I have to say to, to people who are handling children is don't deny them. Don't don't pretend you don't hear them trying to talk about what's happened to them. Listen. And listening is more important than anything. Um, and if you're in a position, get them help. If you're older and you're finally realizing what you need to talk about, find some help. A friend, a trusted person in your life, a trusted family member, a therapist. I know mental health is a challenge. Getting mental health is a challenge in this country. We, we still, it's not easy. Um, but that's my recommendation is find a way to share so you're not carrying it all stuffed in your heart. That's a great advice. Makes, and it makes perfect sense. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, you've done is you've written a book called born child and it uses poetry to talk about adoption. Right. First, can you talk about why you used poetry? Well, you know, here I was as an, as a nine year old, um, with all of this inside, no way to express it and no allowance around me to express it. And I found, I mean, not that they were big book lovers, but I did find a little book of poetry called Paul Graves golden treasury of, of poetry, and it was the classic British poetry. Uh, and I also loved the language of the St. James version of the Bible. There's beautiful language in there. And I loved words. I think, in a way, poets are born. Poets, you know, these people can go to all these workshops they want to learn to write poetry, but if they're not born a poet, they're going to write. They're going to write workshop poetry. Not in my mind, not real poetry. <laughs> I get a lot of trouble with poets saying that, but that's my 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 experience in life. Uh, so I just was gravitated to that as the way to express my feelings. And my very first poem, I don't have it. I know that's about eight. I wrote a poem about how I loved the color blue. I still do. I've got blue on today. And of course, nice. I've got very blue eyes. So very nice. Um, this uh, I do want to point out, though, this book, Born Child, which does describe experiences of being adopted. It describes the anger I felt as a child. It in some of the poems, it describes the loneliness. Um, but at the end, I think, you know, the last poem, Touch Earth, um, and it's not called Touch Earth. It starts with Touch Earth, but it's called The Child Within Us. Um, gotcha. And that's on a hopeful note. Uh, but none of this, the poems were written while by the, the second set of parents were alive, but I would never have published it while they were alive. Um, 
I just couldn't do that. They, they would not, it would have been too painful. They would have felt they failed. As it was, they couldn't even talk to me about the fact that I had gone and found my biological parents. My grandmother, on the other hand, my adopted grandmother, did totally, totally understood. You know, when I came back, she said, patted the couch and said, sit down next to me, tell me all about it. <laughs> nice. But they, they just felt a sense of failure, I guess. I, we never got into it, but I, I had to shield them from my strongest feelings. Gotcha. I wish, I wish they were around to, so I could say now, my God, you walked into an orphanage and gave a little girl life. But maybe they're hearing me up there. There you go. As powerful as it is, is what you just said, because uh, the war had concluded and, you know, they take that step, which you'd have to, you'd have to do. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine just, you have to go in and with the understanding of what you're about to do. So. Right. Right. I couldn't, I just, I waited, I had to wait. Uh, but I did take care of them at the end of their life. I wasn't estranged from them. I just had to be a certain way with them really be what I considered myself um, but I did take care of them and I, I have very fond memories of reading my father the local nature column because he was a great outdoorsman um, and he was very talented himself I have several art uh, lampy freehand painted painted um, wild birds and ducks and things I have a gorgeous kitchen table that's a piece of carved mahogany with a duck landing on a pond nice one solid piece he did them on his uh, sea duties Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Very cool. So, you know, I I did my best. That's very nice. So so what uh, pushed you in the direction of poetry? I mean, what it, what made you um Well, say, I love words and um I love the complicated, you know, I had a very complicated I'd had a very complicated life. Um and poetry somehow I was able to express that complication, that paradox of life that we I think we all run into it's it's um it's a great thing and it's a hard thing like we've all just found out with the pandemic yes so in poetry um you know in novels I do it too but in poetry I could I could address those different levels of feelings that was it mainly feelings I got you very uh, um easy to follow well well written and it's it's awesome and it's kind of like going back to something you said earlier um where you said that uh, people pretty much born to be poets um i'm not one of them um <laughs> i um <laughs> i've tried sometimes but it's like yeah. uh yeah that's uh uh i'm i'm more on the uh on the planet of dr seuss than i am <laughs> <laughs> well there's a there's a place Robert for that Frost. too it's a play, and you know, and I am trying now in my late life to be a little uh, more casual. I just wrote a, a poem I've been reading to friends, and I, they're getting a great, great kick out of it. It's called um, the, the, the Wise One and the Dude in Proverbland, Land, where I, the wise one says something like, um, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And the dude says, okay, I'll use a box. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> and so I have, you know, this poem with like 10 different proverbs where the dude is responding in a, in right. a literal 
uh, kind of sassy way. <laughs> nice, nice. I like so that. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> I like that. That's a nice style too. Thank I like you. that's cool. That, that, Thank that, you. That would get a lot of attention. That's cool. I've been thinking of putting one a day, one proverb a day, wise one and dude, you know, one a day on my Twitter account. <laughs> I, I <laughs> think that I'm would get attention. <laughs> I think that would. I think that would. That's cool. Uh, you Thank know, you. Well, you follow along with the uh, poetry um, in your second, in this other book that you've written, which is Writing Down Cancer. Um, you use poetry to share the details, emotions, and experiences of fighting and surviving breast cancer. Could you talk about your battle a little bit? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me tell you, I really tried to um, absorb the, the metaphor that it was a battle. But it just didn't work for me. Now, remember, too, I was a stage one diagnosis with a very small barely discernible cancer um was it was in 1990 and and what i had a choice of lumpectomy with radiation or a mastectomy i frankly was afraid of the radiation i just didn't think it was refined enough nowadays it's much uh, less stress on the body but i didn't want to find myself at this age with radiation induced illness so i opted for the bigger option of mastectomy but I could not, it didn't feel like a battle to me. When I, one day, kind of in a meditation, I, I said to myself, you know, these cells are mine. My body developed these cells, but they're in the wrong place. As I've said that in one of the poems, you know, they're dancing on the wrong dance floor. Um, my breast, the dance floor. And that what I needed to do was to, if I was going to meditate at all, if I was going to uh bring up emotion toward them. I was going to love them out of my body. Out. You need to go now. Thank you very much. Goodbye. I love you, but you need to go. And I just kept that attitude up. I'm not saying that would have saved me. If I'd had a much, you know, more dreadful diagnosis, it probably wouldn't have. But it created an attitude for me that helped with the fear, really helped uh, mitigate the fear. Because you do, when you're told you have cancer, I don't care what kind of cancer it is, it's terrifying. Yeah, I can and always... it's terrifying for the family. I'm sure you as a son. Oh, very much so. It's, uh, you you know, oh, I, well. you kind of go through uh, different uh, levels of thoughts and ideas. And then, you know, as a son, you don't, you don't want to show um, what... Uh, how scared you are, or yeah, that. yeah, exactly. I think that's probably the best thing ever. Uh, sure. the, what you're talking about and explaining it is like you, you, you know, you're worried that you'll show what you're thinking about, and then, and uh, so, yeah, yeah, you want to put on a brave front, exactly. So, right. so what did you do to overcome that fear and the the thoughts well, that think, must have you know, come ha- to you? Doing a med- that kind of meditation where I'm going to love them out of my body calmed me. Uh, and then because it was a stage one and because I was having a mastectomy and absolutely, and had no signs prior to that with, you know, when they do the initial, um, uh, biopsy work, they take, um, lymph nodes. I had no sign of it having traveled. So everything was really in my court. Um, but still what happens, especially in the first five years, when you go to doctors and you have an issue, it'll be with your, with your history. See, now you've become a cancer patient. And yeah, I would say for the first five to seven years, I was 
I felt like I was kind of living on a knife's edge. Um, but time went on and on, and I stayed with the same doctor. And I went to, I didn't even need to see him, you know, the surgeon. But I, in fact, he did one of the blurbs on the back of that born child, Dr. Herman. He retired about eight years ago. And the last time I saw him was one of his last patients. The two of us were in tears. We just enjoyed each other's company. So I went and saw him every two, um, every two, twice a year. That's excellent. That's that's excellent. The, uh, I can imagine the connection that you develop with people. In fact, my daughter saw him one day in an airport in Atlanta. She recognized him. He had a bag that had his breast health uh, cancer center. And she went over and thanked him. Nice. For for the care he had taken of me. That's very cool. You know, one of the, one of the things that you've done with, you know, I referred to it just a little bit is, uh, um, with writing down cancer is the, the poetry that you use. Did that help you just kind of work through the issues? Yes, it did. Because, for example, the, well, not the very first one. The very first one was written before I even had diagnosis. But it involved um, getting older and breast changing and so forth. But the next poem, The Art of Telling, is, is actually describes how Dr. Herman told, you know, took my hand and carefully gentled my, cradled my heart and thereby cradled my heart. Um, you know, the art of telling me that I had breast cancer. Um, I, I know there's another poem where I'm really angry and where I talk about how I lost, you know, how I lost my left breast. And and there's little, the, the little poems put together two by two and then one, kind of one symbolizing the one breast that's left. And it's little things like, no, I didn't lose it like you leave an umbrella at a doctor's office, or I didn't lose it because, you know, because I left my pocketbook at somebody's house, you know, oh, I lost my pocketbook, or um, I kind of hate the phrase that somebody loses their life, as if there's some reality beyond that, where maybe they find their life, right? Right, right. <laughs> that, that use of the word. So, you know, each poem expresses a kind of feeling that I was having. I have a poem where, you know, I, actually where I go and get the prosthesis and come home and introduce it to my partner, you know, uh, steps along the way is, is what the, it's, that's why I call it writing down cancer. And in a way, not only am I writing down the cancers, the moments, but I'm also gaining control over it. I'm writing it down and I have control. Nice. I like that imagery. Thank you. It took a long time for me to find that title. And it wasn't until finally one day I realized that's the title. I'll see if I can get these published. Oh, that's excellent. That's uh, very cool. So, you know, one of the things that, uh, um, that becomes very obvious if you read your books is that um, you're a survivor of things. Um, Whether it's uh, the situation that's there or the cancer that's in in your, in your body or, or what it, are dealing with life, you're a survivor. And, you know, one of the things I just wanted to ask you is what does it take to be, to do that? To do that? Well, you know, I wondered myself, but one day, um, I know his last name is Anderson. I can't remember his first name. He was one of the Iranian hostages. And I'm not sure it was the one where Carter and where Reagan released them, that group of hostages, or so I think they were with journalists, three journalists that got, um, captured and were in captivity in Iran for a number of years. But his name was Anderson. When he was asked when he came out, how did you survive? He said, I just put one foot in front of the other every day. 
And I remember saying to myself, that's it. That's my definition of survival. You just get that one foot in front of yourself every day. That's powerful. That's and and awesome because I I can imagine that just being able to say that and then do it is what. Uh... Plus, I have to say I wasn't alone. Remember, I did get a lot of help. I did get a lot of therapy. I got into some unusual kind of therapy that dealt with more body expression rather than talking. Gotcha. Uh, kind of acting out your an- anger. Um, that kind of work really. That kind of therapy really helped me. But again, it's connecting with somebody, talking with somebody. That's, uh, and I can I can imagine there uh, being able to do that then stops you from dwelling on whatever those thoughts are and being able to you know say, hey, this is what I'm thinking, and then right. whatever their responses to that. That's that's good stuff because you know one of the things that we have for, I've. Um, you know, when you talk with someone who's a caregiver or something like this, a lot of times people have a hard time not knowing what to say to somebody who's dealing with different situations. And uh, um, do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, like what? Well, I think you might try, um, if you're at all empathetic, you might try, seems like you're really down today, or it must be a struggle to, you know, to have a tough time walking, whatever, something, if you know the person well enough, something just to, to let them know you see them and you see what's happening for them. That's excellent. And standing by them. But you acknowledge it. And the main thing is acknowledge it. Just don't, don't run away. I get so upset with people who are so casual about their families. It just, you know, I who had nothing much of a family for so many years, it just drives me crazy. You know, get with it. Um, it's precious. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. That's uh, you're so right. There's so many people who don't. It, it you gotta yeah. love it while it's there. It's, yeah. <laughs> Say I it again. Appreciate it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but maybe there are things I don't appreciate about other aspects of life because they're not. In, you know, it's not part of my life. I don't know. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> well. Uh, you know, Carol, we're, we're getting close to finishing up. And uh, before we close, would you let everyone know where they could connect and learn more or reach out to you or find well, out about your books? Well, you have that website, uh, carolmayray.com, and it's C-A-R-O-L-M-A-E-M-A-E-R-A-Y. That's the name I was born with. Always thought I would, you know, go to it when all the parents were gone. But by then I had it so long in my life that it was fine. But carolmayray.com is my website. I have... Uh, you know, a meet Carol on the, I have poems on there. I have a couple of slideshows I did of New Orleans. I love New Orleans. Um, in fact, I was just thinking about putting another poem on last night, but it was going to be too hard. So I said, hey. <laughs> uh, so yes, Carol May Ray. And then, you know, through these kind of podcasts, people can get to know me, know my work. If you were to forget my name and so forth, if you were just to Google born child or Google writing down cancer, information is going to come up that would lead you to the website or, or to finishing line press where you can get, you know, get the books. Excellent. I, and I will put that information in the show notes. So it'll be easy for the listeners to, uh, to find it and uh, connect with you, especially because uh, uh, the way the show notes work is that if they got their phone out and they're listening to you on the, on the phone, all they got to do is scroll down in those notes and it'll be highlighted right there. Or they could click and go and to your website. That's the great, great thing about the internet and links. 
Isn't it? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I do that now when I come across a word I'm reading. I, cause I read a lot of books right on my phone nice. and I can click on a word. I, you know, don't quite remember a new word to me and it's instantly get a definition or I can ask echo. Nice. <laughs> nice. Or Alexa <laughs> yes. to find such and such. Yes. That's, that's a nice thing about those little devices. <laughs> I know, isn't it? But I, I love what you're talking about with the, the connectivity of the devices. Like if you have a, uh, e-reader or something like that right. and you and or on your phone and you click on the on the word that's, there it is. that's you nice know, i was showing one of my teachers came to my house early on to see my my computer system and how i connected to the internet because she didn't have wasn't doing it and she made a very profound comment casually she made it she said wow you don't have to ever be alone again <laughs> and i thought that was just amazing that's interesting and, you know and it's really Imagine what it's done for people who are shut in, who can't get out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's yeah, it's very powerful. And even us right now, we're an example of it. Yes. This is this is one of the coolest things. I I can't even imagine. I appreciate, I was, appreciate the kind of audience you, you're communicating with. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. The uh, And what's the really important audience. Very much so. And then we have, uh, what's really cool is a lot of librarians are part of that audience too. Oh, so. wonderful. So this is cool. Um, I it, This is a note when you were talking about earlier about uh, teaching people how to use the internet and stuff like this. It was funny because when I was a principal, I had this one uh, media specialist who, um, she was really ahead of her time with uh, trying to show teachers how to use these different tools um, right. from this thing called Google. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, now that Google's this massive empire, but uh, right. um, I just, I'll never forget her trying to explain that. And, and, uh, and it was a class full of, I mean, she taught it to kids and stuff like this, but it was a class full of adults. And, <laughs> yes. right. Right. and so that was funny. Um, yeah, I, well, I had that experience because I did it for my teachers after school. We had professional development, 10 weeks of it. But the, the best time was when I asked them to turn off their monitor so I could have their attention. Nice. And one of the teachers in the back had glasses. And I said to him, Mike, turn off your monitor. And he looked at me like, how did you know? I said, because it's reflecting in your glasses. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> what? I'm not doing anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> nice. <laughs> 12, yeah, 28 years with 12-year-olds. <laughs> Exactly. Teaches you a lot. Teaches you a lot. Nobody better cut in line in front of me. <laughs> That's awesome. Very nice. <laughs> well, this is cool. I got I got two last questions for you, Carol. Okay. Go ahead. And the first one goes like this: How do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? Uh, oh boy, with the political scene we've got, I'm feeling that these days. How do I keep going on? Well, I take a break from the things that bother me, and I try to get outside. Like I've just texted my neighbor how about a walk this afternoon she's just getting over covid so at least we if we're outside you know um yeah i just have to divert myself from whatever it is that's um upsetting me yeah just be careful with do the things that give me pleasure instead of seeking out stuff i can get ticked off about <laughs> very nice i like that uh, very good uh, and last question and you and you started to answer this a little bit ago so i uh, give you a chance to answer okay. the for everybody to hear the question. Uh, uh, do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Well, I would say it was my a college Shakespearean professor who was my major advisor also because I was an English major, um, Dr. Warren Smith. He was an authority on Shakespeare's Playhouse practice, the Globe Theater and how 
how the Shakespeare productions were put on originally. Um, he he convinced me that I was a poet of of some worth. That you know, keep going. You you've got the you've got it. You can do it. Um, he was a marvelous teacher, wonderful teacher, uh, very animated. He had been a musician in during during the swing era in Les Brown's orchestra. Nice. So he had, you know, he had came from a whole different. He wasn't a stuffy academic. Right, he was right. Just a wonderful human being. And then I think the my my adopted father, who was not a teacher, but he was in girls. He did Girl Scouts with me. He was he taught me a lot about nature. Um, and my foster, that one foster mother, she taught me a little bit about love that I hadn't had. That's yeah. e- That's excellent. It could come in different forms, but anyway. No, it, it does. Yeah. I agree with you. Thanks for asking. Oh, thank you. Thank you for talking. Uh, Carol, it was awesome talking with you today. I mean, thank you for sharing your books, Born Child and Writing Down Cancer. Your thoughts and comments are powerful, and you're an inspiration to all. I wish you the best in all you do. Thank you. Take so- care. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.